welcome again everyone uh, who's here today. Uh, today, uh, now that Easter is over, Lent is over, I'm going to be moving into a new sermon series. I'm going to be calling it Navigating Modern Life, and I'm going to pick through just uh, some different topics that I think we kind of, that, that are relevant, uh, probably more practical maybe than biblical. We'll go back to the lectionary after Pentecost when summer comes. Uh, but I, I thought it would be a good um, way to have a little take on some current issues. Uh, I'm not always sure that we as Christians, when we look at contemporary issues, we look at them through a faith lens. I think oftentimes we look at issues through sort of the culture and the politics of the day. Uh, and that we don't always bring our faith to these questions. That often it's like you, live, you have your life over here and then you have your faith over here. And we kind of draw a boundary sometimes uh, but in Jesus, there is no distinction, right? In the Bible, there's no distinction between living as a follower of God and, and like having, there is no idea of living as a secular person. It isn't a biblical idea. And so I worry that sometimes when we, if we separate things too much, we end up, we end up staking out positions and beliefs based on kind of what we're fed by the culture, fed by the media, or we get caught up in partisan categories that aren't necessarily biblical categories. Or, you know, and then, of course, you can end up getting caught up in that and then going to church and wanting the church, you know, to want to mirror back those categories rather than asking, instead of, does the church meet my categories, do my categories follow Jesus? So I thought it would be good to take a faith lens to some of these things. Uh, I'm deliberately picking kind of more basic uh, everyday kind of things. Um, hopefully, they'll give us some help on how to live a Jesus-like life. And back when I picked out the sermon series, I decided to start with money. I don't know why I picked that. Uh, maybe just because it's so prevalent in how we live our lives. I mean, you think about everything about your life that's dictated by money, you know? What you wear, uh, where you live, um, what you eat, what car you drive, Right? I mean, so many of these things are dictated by the money. And of course, where you eat, where you live and where you eat then has an effect on who you run into and what kind of social circles you're in and who you end up happening to bump into and happening to make friends with. And all these things kind of become a function of money in some way, shape, or form. And churches, churches have kind of a long history of some, not always being the best with this. There's a, I saw a meme out there. And of course, memes are always like, you know, characterizations, and they're, you know, unnuanced, and, but it was, it was actually a, this, like a second cousin of mine who's this really hard atheist, and he, it said, uh, money is the root of all evil, so give it to us, and I was like, well, I wanted to, uh, don't engage, don't engage, but I wanted to say, well, actually, you need to look at that verse in context and see that that's actually not what it says. What does it say? Let's look at First Timothy 6. What does it say? And I'll confess, I inadvertently had my, I had my Bible setting set on an older, uh, more conservative translation, so it's going to be man, man, man everywhere here. Um, but it says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Not quite what the meme said. You know, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it's not the only root. It is not the root. It is one. And it is not the, the root of all evil, but all uh, of different of many different categories of evil. So there are many different kinds of evil that aren't involving money, right? But boy, that, that doesn't make for a very good meme, you know? Money is the root of multiple different categories of understanding of evil, but not all categories of evil are included in this. Like if you had sets, right? You have the set of evil and money's over here. All right. But I kind of like that full version of it. Uh, it gets to the heart of the matter. When we, desire, when we desire wealth, we can fall into harmful things to get it. And the issue isn't the actual currency itself. The Bible never says we should go back to barter. Uh, it's the desires behind it, right? The things that we crave that we think money will get us, right? It's not all evil. It's all kinds of evil. When, when you look up, look up sermons today, uh, I did a little Google searching because everyone's got their sermons online, right? Um, they tend to fall into a couple categories, generally speaking. One, when they talk about money, tends to be a, a very prophetic stance, right? The way in which money is handled and operates and functions in the economy, privileges some, oppresses others, leaves some people hungry. We need to look at how those systems operate so people aren't oppressed and don't go hungry. That's kind of a prophetic stance, right? You can hear Amos and Isaiah talking behind that. The other one tends to be very kind of self-help. Here are steps to get more money for yourself. And um, one of the, for example, one of the pieces of advice, I saw a whole sermon series on this. It, it, was, it was really radical and complicated, so you'll have to bear with me here. Write out a budget. Follow it. That was the whole series. He did like three sermons on that. I was kind of impressed. I was like, wow, that's just like pretty basic, solid advice. Not terribly radical stuff there. Not rocket science. Although, even though it's not rocket science, it's often hard to do, isn't it? I mean, how many of us really, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us really do that, right? How many of us really sit down, you know, and, and write everything out at the beginning of the year and say, okay, this is estimated income, this is mortgage and car and, and HOA fees and on and on and on, you know, and okay, I have all these things and how much is going to be spent there and okay, how much am I going to put away in savings and, you know, of course, nowadays it's kind of cool, you can automatically have your savings withdrawn, you know, they'll, they'll shuffle it from one account to the other without you having to work on it. And then, of course, your pastor tells you, make sure you automatically withdraw some to the church as well, right? And, uh, um, and then you see what it's left, and then you calculate, what can I do with it? You know, do I, how big of a vacation should I do? Uh, how many streaming services do I really need? These kind of things, you know. And then, when all that's done, you say, okay, now how much money is left for entertainment, for eating out, for going to concerts, for uh, uh, going to the monster truck rally when it's in town. I actually looked this one up. I, I was actually going to go um, one Sunday, 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 and um, it was 50 bucks. 
they wanted like 50 bucks to watch Gravedigger. I was like, holy mackerel. Um, I get it, the machines are expensive, but still, right? How many of us actually do that? Where you write everything out, and you follow this careful budget, and you sit down at that kitchen table with a spreadsheet, and you plan it all out, and then each month, you sit down again and you reevaluate it. Okay, how close was I to last month? What things did I go over? Did, ooh, did I make impulse buys? You know, it sounds like such a simple piece of advice. Make a budget, write down a budget and stick to it. But boy, it doesn't get done all the time, right? But the idea behind it isn't just purely practical. It's that when we sit down at that kitchen table or at your computer, and we write out that spreadsheet, and we make those decisions in that moment, we are more likely to make decisions that are kind of cold and rational and thought through and a lot less impulsive. And a lot of things are going to seem like a lot more money when you actually write out how much it is. Uh, for example, eating out. You know, you ever write down a monthly eating out budget and how much it actually is? and how much that is compared to what it would be if you just went down to the fries and bought that same thing yourself, right? I mean, I mean, you think about, like, if you're going to have a whole bunch of friends and you're all going to go out to dinner at the steakhouse, and how much that's going to be versus if you just went to the fries, bought a bunch of steak, bought a big bag of peanuts, you know, bought some mashed potatoes, and had a big barbecue in the backyard, have Bill bring the not micro-brew over. The ma you have him bring his can of macro-brew over, and everybody has a good time, and then you add up the cost difference. I can almost guarantee you it will be a fraction of the cost to do it in your backyard, and you can probably get really good beef for the same cost as paying for all those other things. I mean, heck, I was down at Nana's this week. Always a great place, right? I guess I put a product placement in my sermon, but... Um, <laughs> It was like 16 bucks for a burrito. I'm like, holy mackerel. When I moved here, I could get one for like eight. Inflation, right? Um, but when you're doing that, when you're sitting down and you're, you're calculating and adding all that up, um, you're making, you're spending more about plans and goals than about impulses and desires. Because it's when you get, it's when you get the desires into it that you start to spend more impulsively. You know, it's, you're more likely to put, you're more likely to overreach a little bit and put it on your credit card and then end up getting stuck with higher interest. That's why when I went home shopping the first time, um, I was so happy that I went and locked in my maximum mortgage amount, period, end of story. Um, because the realtors have a tendency to want to show you one that's just a little bit nicer. Right? and just a little bit bigger, and then make it look like the one that's in your budget. Oh, man. And make you feel bad about the one that's in your budget. And I was really glad we just locked it in. Nope, this is the amount. That's all we're paying. I'm not looking at anything that's asking for more than that amount. I'm not going to overreach. I'm glad I did, you know? Because it's when you start, your eye starts getting into, your heart starts getting into, your desire starts getting into it. Then you start going, oof. And then what does it say in 1 Timothy? They fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. The crazy things we do for money, they come from our desires. And I totally think these financial planning tools, I think they're really good to use. Um, 
And we almost always act better for ourselves in the long run when our decisions are kind of cold rather than being desire-based decisions. But, and you know there's always a but to it, right? What do we do about that? All the desires. I mean, planning things that carefully and following it that carefully, it does take a lot of self-discipline to do that. And, and there are ways to discipline yourself. There's tools on that. But when you're done, it does usually end up leave you with less of an entertainment budget and more practicality in long term. Which is why, at the root of this, this is still a spiritual issue. Because it gets to who we are, right? The financial tools are there to help us cope with the desires and not have them control us. It doesn't make them go away. Right? Planning out a budget doesn't tell you what to put in it, but just the, somehow the methodology, right? It changes, it changes what you end up putting into it because you're thinking about it differently. And then you understand what you're, and then when you start to understand what you're really spending your money on, and when you sit down and think about things like plans and goals, you start to make better decisions. Because we aren't robots, right? Money buys things that mean things to us. And those meanings are important. And we don't always even know them ourselves. We're not always even self-aware. And they don't show up in the books. And I, I'm not even really convinced that the writer of 1 Timothy, that it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of the things you want to get with the money that can become the root of evil. So to say that again, it's not the love of money, it's the love of the things you want to get with it. That's the root. And when you can name the things you want, the things you desire, the things that you lack or you think you lack that that money is going to fill for you, then you can begin to get it under control. But you have to be aware of it, right? I remember when I, my first congregation was in uh, the North Shore of Chicago. But I always have to paraphrase that with not actually on the shore. You don't start out at 26 on the shore unless you run a dot-com or something like that, right? I mean, I remember looking at houses on Lake Michigan for seven million, not looking at them, on looking at them online, for seven million, seven million in 1999 money, right? I mean, so I actually lived like two suburbs over in an unincorporated area of a different township. So, because that's what I could afford, right? But I remember what it was like when you live in this tiny little 1,300 square foot, 1950s track house that was literally prefab built. Um, so if you peeled away the vinyl siding, you could see where that you could have put a window if you wanted to. They were all stock. And the corner of our foundation, it was kind of funny because it had cracked. It was on a slab and it cracked, and so when winter came, it sank because the groundwater was less. And then when it rained, it would, it would, it would float back up. I was like, you know, okay, so this is what I'm living with, right? And then you drive around and you see these, you see these just huge, gorgeous houses. Like, have you ever seen Home Alone? I mean, who hasn't seen Home Alone, right? The guy who somehow is able to afford this, like, eight-bedroom house and take his whole 15, 20-person family to Paris over Christmas break, vacation, right? I mean, that was filmed not too far away. And you drive around and you see these kind of giant houses all day. 
and, and you know, and some are more modest than others, and some are huge and beautiful. And, and then you would see people come in with the kind of money where they would go, they'd look at a house for $850 million and go, I just want the lot. So they blow the whole house up, just build a whole new one. Didn't care, it was perfectly good shape. I wanted my house my way. I just want that lot that butts up against the golf course. And, and you drive around in this kind of stuff, right? Big houses, new cars, fancy restaurants. The kids at school sit and compare their Christmas vacations, right? Where did you go? Oh, I chopper skied into Tahoe. Where did you go? Oh, I was, uh, I was visiting the Coliseum. Where did you go? I went and visited Grandma in Peoria. Um. <laughs> What's going to give you... But honestly, what would you do to get another day with Grandma back, right? So it was a different kind of lifestyle. But what I found myself doing, and I didn't realize this right away, is I started dreaming of what it would be like if I could get one of those places. If I could move out of this township just to the other side of the road with a better township. And, and what it would mean if my, you know, if my kids went to that school? And, and, and what, what would it mean if I could go into those restaurants? And, and you know, I'm not a huge golfer, but boy, you could, tell where you, you could tell your social class by which golf course you used, right? The North Shore Country Club at the time had a $70,000 uh, intro fee. That was, that was your down payment to get on the wait list in 2003, right? All these things were affecting it, so then I would... I'd sit and I'd dream about it and dream about it. Oh, wouldn't it be so wonderful? And then I'd get in my car and I'd drive back up to the cabin and sit up there in the woods and uh, I'd look around and suddenly I'd realize I'm sitting here and I'm quite happy and I don't care how big my house is and I don't care that I'm driving a Saturn and not a Lexus. And, 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 and you know, I ate at, you know, Billy's, you know, Hibbing Cafe. I don't remember what it was called. And, you know, and I'm like, this is good. I don't need all that stuff. Why am I okay with this? Because that's how coveting works. You see what other people have, and if they have more, you start to feel like you lack. And then you start trying to figure out a way to make up that lack. And you start to feel kind of inadequate. And you start to think that, you don't, that, that, that there's something missing in you. And it gets in your head, and you start desiring it. And it gets everywhere all the time, and you realize that it's not the money you want. Money's just the tool. It's the lack that you want to fill with what you buy with the money. The social cred, the circles, the social circles, the clubs you get into, right? How people look at you. Because people do look at you differently, right? And as a parent, of course, this can get at you too, right? I don't feel like I'm as good of a parent, you know? I didn't get my kid a XYZ for Christmas right? So that's my theory for why everyone goes into Walmart and stampedes it on Black Friday is it's people who don't have a lot of money trying to figure out a way to get their kids the same Christmas that the other kids in school are going to get so their kids don't feel like losers. People always make fun of the people stampeding and it seems ridiculous but if it, you know, what would you do to make sure that your kid doesn't get picked on and called a loser on, at the first day of school in January, you'd probably, you'd probably trip over a couple shopping carts too. Right? And all these things, they play into your self-esteem, your sense of self-worth. And the money starts to feel like it's the thing that's going to unlock the door to the future that will solve all that lack. 
It's emotional. It's very emotional. It's why we go back to saying one of the best ways to get a handle on your money is to have some reflection on what you really want out of life. What really makes you happy? What really brings you joy? What really will, will, will make this world a better place? What really will make your kids happier and better adults? And will having the money really cure those things? Or are you just feeling this lack because you're coveting what others have? And once you start to get aware of those higher purposes and those callings and those spiritual things in your life, you can start to be a lot more comfortable sitting down and making a budget wisely and making sure you have money left over to be generous. I mean, really, what will really build more friendships and joy and community? Will it be that backyard barbecue with the macro brew? Or will, it be, will the fancy restaurant build the relationship better? Really? I mean, I like going out to eat, but I mean, just being perfectly honest, it won't, will it really make the relationship better? Will the small car, that old car, get you to work just as well? You have to have the fancy one, you know? Why do I need, why do I desire a car? that can go around a curve at 180 miles an hour at 5 G's without tipping, when the truth is Marana PD is going to bust me for going 47.5 miles an hour on coach line no matter what I do. <laughs> but that Bugatti is going to make me a target. You know it. And you know the guy who writes the ticket is going to go back to the substation on I-9 and go, I just got a Bugatti. Will it fill my sense of self? Is that what I'm doing? Trying to boost up a sense of accomplishment so I can pull up to the, the, the I can pull up to that stoplight at Ina and Thornydale and go, mm, 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 and have people go, yeah, I made it in life. Or could I get that same sense by budgeting a simpler car and just giving away a lot of money and say, look, I've made it. I can write a check this big to the mission or to the church, or to the food bank. When you look at Jesus and money, it's clear that Jesus didn't have a lot himself. Uh, but a bunch of his friends did. You know, you think Matthew the tax collector, Zacchaeus the tax collector, Mary and Martha, you know, the ones who had a jar of perfume worth a, a year's salary. You know, Joseph of Arimathea, who carried the cross, he was wealthy because only wealthy people could give a full underground tomb. Jesus relied on them for his ministry. But he wasn't ever seemingly motivated by trying to get more for himself. And I think partly that's the nature of his ministry and partly because he understood that what makes life more full and rich and, and meaningful and what makes this world a better world isn't always through the stuff you buy, but through the good you do, through following the Lord. And that's what makes the difference. It's why... I think Jesus sits there in his gospel reading today and he talks about that guy who keeps building the bigger barns, you know, to keep storing up more. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really, that isn't really what makes the difference. So, yeah, take the advice of those planners. It's good advice. Sit down, write it out. Think about things like calling, what value, meaning. And then we can start to shift those away from things that are hollow and empty to things that are valuable and that build us up us 
and the kingdom of God. Amen.